Welcome to the St. Andrew's Sunday Morning Sermon Podcast. You can connect with us online at www.gosaintandrew.com. This morning, our reading comes from the first epistle, our letter of Peter. First Peter is a letter of encouragement and exhortation written in the name of the Apostle Peter during the latter third of the first century CE to communities scattered throughout Asia Minor suffering as an oppressed minority in an alien society. Its eloquent articulation of the meaning of Christ's death and resurrection for Christian life and society, its rich use of common Christian tradition, its lofty expression of the divinely conferred dignity and responsibility of the elect and holy people of God, its courageous summons to communal solidarity and hope in the face of social hostility and its moving pastoral tone gained for the letter rapid recognition in the early church and an undisputed place in the biblical canon. Known in Rome by the end of the first century and recognized in both East and West in succeeding centuries, the letter was ranked by one church father, Eusebius, in the fourth century among those canonical writings about which there was universal agreement. Centuries later, in the Reformation era, it was First Peter, along with the Gospel of John and Paul's letter to the Romans, which Martin Luther singled out as, quote, the true kernel and marrow of all the New Testament books. First Peter bears all the elements of a classical Greek letter, framed by a salutation and conclusion. The body of the letter combines an affirmation of the distinctive communal identity and divinely conferred dignity of Christian believers with exhortation concerning their appropriate collective behavior within an unfriendly society. The verses we will read today are a conclusion of sorts. Peter turns and speaks of the attitudes Christians should demonstrate to one another in both their actions and reactions. This is contained in one word, blessing, eulogion in the Greek, the calling down of God's gracious power and love on all people, even on those who wish or do us harm. To behave like this is encouraged by knowing that Christians themselves will ultimately inherit God's blessing. This was promised in Psalm 34, verses 12 through 16, which Peter quotes in our reading this morning. Christians are called to walk the way of blamelessness and uprightness, actively pursuing peace with all, just like the people of faith in the Old Testament. Let's turn now and hear the beloved words of Peter to his readers. Today's reading is from 1 Peter 3, verses 8 through 12 from the New Revised Standard Version of the Bible. Finally, all of you have unity of spirit, sympathy, love for one another, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or abuse for abuse, but on the contrary, repay with a blessing. It is for this that you are called, that you might inherit a blessing. 
For those who desire life and desire to see good days, let them keep their tongues from evil and their lips from speaking deceit. Let them turn away from evil and do good. Let them seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. We begin a new sermon series today called Make Me an Instrument, the Peace Prayer for Postmoderns. It's based on the familiar prayer that for decades has been attributed to St. Francis, an Italian Christian mystic and preacher who lived in the 12th century. I first discovered this so-called prayer of St. Francis when I was 16 years old. At a time of deep searching and discernment in my life, this prayer had a profound impact on my sense of purpose and my understanding of vocation in the world. And I have prayed it almost daily ever since. But it wasn't until recently that I discovered that St. Francis actually didn't write the prayer. According to historians, the prayer dates back to 1912, about 700 years after the death of St. Francis. And because no one really knows its author, it's now simply called the Peace Prayer. But its widespread spiritual impact is unmistakable. Mother Teresa recited the Peace Prayer every day. Margaret Thatcher cited it upon becoming Prime Minister of Britain. It's the go-to prayer for Democratic Congresswoman Nancy Pelosi and former Republican Speaker of the House John Boehner. Alcoholics Anonymous includes it in its 12 Steps book. So the peace prayer gets around and it serves as a simple yet powerful guide for how to live your life with purpose every day in a broken, hurting, despairing world. If you have ever wondered what you're supposed to be doing with your life or how to truly walk in the footsteps of Jesus Christ, start with the peace prayer. It reads like this, Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O divine master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. It's such a relevant prayer for the times that we are in today. Hatred, injury, doubt, despair, darkness, sadness, we don't have to look very far to see how these struggles play out every day in our world. And every day, don't we find ourselves in the very midst of such struggles? We are swimming in a cultural sea of unpeace. Political divisions, racial injustices, a surging mental health crisis, daily mass shootings, 
a looming ecological crisis. The list goes on. And who doesn't wonder, when will it ever end? But the peace prayer asks us, where will you finally begin? Where there's hatred, where there's injury, where there's doubt, where there is despair, darkness, sadness, that's where, that's where you begin. And when we pray this prayer, we can no longer retreat from the world in fear or self-preservation or resignation. When we pray this prayer, we are asking God to make us instruments of peace, instruments in the world, wherever we happen to be and whenever we happen to be there. We are committing ourselves to the hard, seemingly impossible work of redeeming, healing, and transforming whatever spaces and places we happen to be in and whatever people happen to be in them at the time. There's just one problem. As instruments go, we tend to be pretty blunt. Every one of us. It is hard to be an instrument of peace in the world when we all know that there is a battle going on within us a battle that's causing unpeace in our own lives. Look, there's no shame in this. It's what it means to be a human, according to Scripture. We are beautifully and wonderfully made, but we are inherently and invariably flawed. And accepting this truth is the very first step to finding peace within ourselves. Call it sin, call it human fallenness or depravity, call it whatever you want, we are naturally prone to focus always on ourselves. We tend to be self-absorbed and self-centered. Life is all about me, my desires, my wants, and my demands. We can't break free from the ego's strong gravitational pull. This is human nature. But there is also in all of us a divine nature. It's the source of our genuine desire to do good, to live selflessly, to act justly and compassionately. We, we all have this divine nature in us. It's God-given. But every day, our divine nature walks out onto the playground of life with such love and wonder at the world, only to be bullied and assaulted by our human nature which seems to show up every day on that playground intent on stealing our lunch money. This daily internal battle leads to a lot of unpeace in our lives. The Apostle Paul once described it this way. He said, I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. I can will what is right, but I cannot do it. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. Paul describes two forces working within us against each other, good and evil, selflessness and selfishness. I don't know, maybe it helps to, to think of these forces in less theological terms. When Isaac Newton studied the physical laws of the natural world, 
he identified two forces that were essentially two sides of the same coin. The first is what he called the centripetal force. Newton said that if you put a stone on a string and, and you whirl it around in a circle, the string will constantly try to pull the stone toward the center. The centripetal force, that's gravitational pull. It's what Newton called the force by which bodies are drawn or impelled toward the center. In fact, centripetal from the Latin literally means self-centered. Now, Newton didn't exactly say this, but the centripetal force isn't just a law of physics. It's a law of human nature. I am the center of the universe. Life is all about me. And so we demand to get what we want. We hunt for affirmation and validation. We throw tantrums when the world doesn't cooperate with our plans or bend to our demands. During the final days at Denver's Stapleton Airport, a crowded United Airlines flight was canceled and a single agent was rebooking a long line of very inconvenienced and frustrated travelers when a disgruntled passenger pushed his way to the front. He slapped his ticket down on the counter and said, I have to be on this flight and it has to be first class. And the agent replied, I'll be happy to try to help you, sir, but I've got to help these folks first. And the passenger was annoyed. He asked her loudly so that everyone around him could hear, do you have any idea who I am? And without hesitating, the agent grabbed her public address microphone and said, may I have your attention, please? Announcing her voice as it bellowed through the entire terminal. We seem to have a passenger here who has no idea who he is. If anybody can help him remember, please come forward to the gate. The centripetal force of the soul leads to a lot of unpeace in our lives and in the world. But there is another force at work in the world. Newton called it the centrifugal force. That same stone on that same string that you're whirling around in a circle, this is what he proved. It's always trying to break free and move beyond the center. The stone wants to move outward beyond itself. It wants to break free from the gravitational pull of the self. Only the centripetal force is acting against it. So the stone gets trapped in a in a state of inertia. Have you ever been stuck in a season, a season in your own life in which it, it seems that the view never changes? While serving at my previous church in San Diego, every year I would take a group of adults on a trip to LA's Skid Row to work at various outreach agencies. It was a world that none of these adults had ever seen or imagined was even possible in America. 4,000 people on Skid Row, including hundreds and hundreds of children. To the first time visitor, Skid Row looks, it looks like a swollen sea of human suffering and profound need. 
But the point of that trip every year wasn't actually to serve the homeless. It wasn't about charity, to be honest. The point was to awaken the consciences of my mostly white, affluent, comfortable congregants, to break them free from the gravitational pull of the self and self-concern. The point was always the drive home when invariably someone would ask the question, knowing what we now know, seeing what we have just seen, what are we going to do? The peace prayer challenges the spiritual laws of our nature. It challenges us to yield to to that centrifugal force of the soul. It trains us to to put aside self-interest, to relinquish that centripetal force with us so that we can break free and, and give ourselves to others. Our passage from 1 Peter this morning describes the effect of that lifelong training. The writer says, have unity of spirit, sympathy, love for one another, a tender heart, a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or abuse for abuse. On the contrary, repay with a blessing. For those who desire life and desire to see good days, let them keep their tongues from evil and their lips from speaking deceit. Let them turn away from evil and do good. Let them seek peace and pursue it. First Peter describes a turning away from the south and an outward pursuit of peace. Peace, that word peace, is the chief aim of the peace prayer. In that passage from First Peter, the Greek word for peace is irene. What does that mean? I mean, what is peace? Modern definitions of peace, I think, miss the point of the biblical vision for peace altogether. We today define peace mostly as the absence of conflict, the exemption from the rage and havoc of war. And as such, world peace, for example, doesn't necessarily mean everyone is working in the best interest of others. According to this definition, it just means that We're not trying to kill each other at the moment. Today we also talk a lot about inner peace. That's a big thing for people these days. The world might be falling apart, but as long as I've had my hot yoga and green tea today, I'm I'm all good. We call this kind of peace inner tranquility or harmony. Namaste. And I'm a big fan of inner peace. I mean, on most days I, I could use a lot more of it. But this irene kind of peace is different. It's not just the absence of conflict. It's rooted in the ancient Hebrew concept of shalom, which means to make something whole. Shalom has an overall sense of fullness and completeness in mind, body and spirit. Maybe the closest English word to shalom is something like well-being or wellness or wholeness. It's it's a healthy integration of all aspects of life, the physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual. It's It's a wholeness or completeness of a person, of a community, of creation, of the world. 
And so to pray, make me an instrument of your peace, is to ask God to use us as a channel that makes the well-being of others or of the world possible. The aim of centrifugal love is the shalom kind of peace. So how do we turn ourselves into an instrument of peace? We don't. That's why it's a prayer and not a proclamation. We are asking God to fashion us into instruments of peace. And that fashioning work demands first that we do the intentional work ourselves of cultivating peace in our own lives by committing to two specific practices. The first practice is to surrender control. Good luck. Have you ever noticed that sometimes our idea of what's good for someone or even for the world misses the mark completely? Sometimes we're only so committed to the well-being of someone else insofar as it conforms to our own wonderful, brilliant idea of what that well-being should look like. You give a friend or a loved one some advice, really, really good advice that you're sure really can turn things around for him, only to find that he won't take that advice. You're pretty confident that this advice, it's, it's what's best for him but he chooses to do something else instead. Or you're in your car waiting for the light at the intersection to change and, and you consider giving that veteran with the help me sign, you know, the help me sign in the median, you consider giving him a dollar or two only then to suddenly think he'll just take it right to the liquor store. That centripetal, self-centered, self-referenced force is always trying to act upon others. It's always trying to pull the other into our universe like that stone on a string. Why? Because we know what's best for people, of course. We know what's best uh, in this or in that situation. And we say, if I were you, I would do it this way. Sometimes we just need to be in control. And that can be such a slippery slope. When do we take charge and act? When do we hold back and trust? We want to be large and in charge, but sometimes we need to be small and detached. There's this great scene, the Gospel of John, when John the Baptist's disciples come to John to report uh, that Jesus is on the other side of the river baptizing people. Now, this is a problem because baptism was kind of John's gig. John had been turning a lot of lives around at the river, um, baptizing, getting people back on track. John the Baptist was kind of a big deal. He was a first century influencer with a huge following on social media. And so John's marketing and branding team come to him and say, uh, this Jesus character is kind of cutting into your market, John. What would you like us to do? Should we post some nasty reviews on Yelp? But in the story, John knows his role. He knows 
that the good that he's been doing is nothing compared to the good that Jesus is doing. And so he tells his followers, I am not the Messiah. I must decrease that he might increase. The peace prayer demands that before we march out into the darkness or despair or injury or doubt or hatred, we have to stop. And we have to look at ourselves. And we have to repeat John's mantra. I am not the Messiah. I must decrease that he might increase. The late Jesuit writer Henry Nouwen reminded us of of the flying trapeze artist. He said, before they can be caught, they must let go. They must brave the emptiness of space. Living with this kind of willingness to let go is one of the greatest challenges we face. The great paradox is that in letting go, we receive. We find safety in unexpected places of risk. And those who try to avoid all risk, those who would try to guarantee that their hearts will not be broken, end up in a self-created hell. So we let go and surrender our need to control. We're just instruments. Any instrument of God that tries to control how it is used becomes a blunt instrument that becomes useless in the hands of God. The second practice is to relinquish your entitlements. If we truly desire to be instruments of peace, we have to be prepared for the inevitable personal pain it will bring upon us and the sacrifice it will demand of us. What the peace prayer assumes that you understand is that when you step into the darkness to bring light, the forces of darkness will threaten to overwhelm you. When you dare step into places of despair to bring hope, you will inevitably experience moments of hopelessness yourself. When you go to to help those who are injured, it's very possible that the injured will injure you Try to bring joy to the sadness of the world and you better be prepared to bear the weight of that sadness in your own heart. Every instrument bears the evidence in its own body of how it will be used and has been used. Every tool lying in the toolbox, every wooden spoon resting in the kitchen drawer, if it's not scarred, or stretched, or scratched, or burned, or dented, it likely hasn't been good for much. We have to expect that when we work for the well-being and peace of others, or for the world, we will feel it in our body. We will pay some price. And so an instrument of peace can never say, I didn't deserve this. Or why is this happening to me? So here's another mantra for you. 
when you're eager to march out to be an instrument of peace. <laughs> it's an old line from that song by Lynn Anderson and Albert Hammond. I beg your pardon. I never promised you a rose garden. Along with the sunshine, there's got to be a little rain sometimes. I beg your pardon. I never promised you a rose garden. Maybe this is why Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. It never ever feels good at the time to be persecuted or reviled or to have evil uttered falsely against you. But remember, if you can, that Jesus called it blessed. Sometimes that's all you have to go on, peacemaker. During the apartheid era, South African writer Alan Patton, he was the one who wrote Cry the Beloved Country. He said that when we die, we'll all stand before our judge who will ask us one question. Where have you been? And we'll say, down on earth, doing this and doing that, living. And God will ask, where are your scars? And we'll look at ourselves and then look back at God and tell him, well, we have no scars. And God will ask us, while you were living on earth, was there nothing worth fighting for? Takeaways for today. In a world that cries out, when will it ever end? God asks us, where will you finally begin? Any instrument of God that tries to control how it is used becomes a blunt instrument that is useless in the hands of God. Every instrument of God bears the evidence in its own body. Thanks for tuning in to this week's podcast. And if you'd like more information, go to www.gosaintandrew.com. See you next week. Make me a channel of your peace Where there is hatred, let me bring your love Where there is injury, your bottom Lord And where there's doubt, true faith in you Make me a channel of your peace
Truth.